All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, friend. This is an episode of Note to Self, but from when we used to be called New Tech City. Same good content, just the old name. Enjoy. This is WNYC's New Tech City, where digital gets personal. I'm Anoush Samarodi. This week, what video games have to do with Ebola and containing it. I want to tell you about one of the most popular video games out there. It is just really gross and super morbid. The plague was unlike anything we had ever encountered before. It came out of nowhere. Spreading undetected, its only symptom, a tiny cough. We think patient zero became infected in Africa, but we can't be sure. The game is called Plague. Your goal is, yes, to spread a virus that keeps mutating. Endemic, the company that makes the game, says that 35 million people have played Plague. It's like risk, but with disease. So you have to pick a country to start in, and then there's different things that pop up, and you have to, like, stop the researchers from finding a cure. And you have to just, and you get points every time you infect a new country. One of those players is 19-year-old Alina Mambo. And she admits that the best way to make the virus spread is to pick a poor country with a big population and a weak government. Alina loves plague. Or I should say she loved it. Past tense. It's really bad now that you think about it. Because of the whole, like, Ebola crisis and stuff like that, it just makes it seem way, like, I don't know, it feels wrong now to play the game. Plague doesn't seem as fictional anymore. Alina has moved on to different video games. Back here in real life, though, we have Ebola. In March, the government of Guinea tells the World Health Organization about 49 citizens are sick. 29 of them die. This is the first official report of the Ebola outbreak. It's since spread to Liberia, Sierra Leone, now the U.S., Spain, Denmark, who knows where. More than 9,000 people have been infected. But how to stop it before it becomes a plague? How do you keep a nurse who was exposed to the virus at her Dallas hospital from getting on a plane to go to Cleveland? Monday night, as she was becoming ill, Vincent flew commercially from Cleveland to Dallas with 132 other passengers. Or how do you stop the lab technician who handled infected samples from, yes, getting on a cruise ship? Passengers aboard a carnival ship back on dry land. A Caribbean cruise cut short. We just couldn't believe it. After finding out one of their fellow vacationers was being monitored for Ebola. It was enough to scare you to death, but other than that, it was a good cruise. Human behavior is hard to control and predict. But oddly, video games can give us some insight into how Ebola could potentially be contained. And that's what the rest of today's show is about. It comes to us from writer and radio producer 
Simon Adler. So when there's an outbreak like this Ebola epidemic, the starting point for any action, like how much money the CDC will spend, where to deploy the rapid response team, how many hazmat suits to order, all of this is based on computer models. And these models are based on a bunch of complicated math equations that factor in a ton of probabilities, like what's the retransmission rate? What's the incubation period? The number of people an average sick person comes in contact with, and so forth. A startling prediction today from the Centers for Disease Control. The agency says that there could be 1.4 million people with Ebola by the end of January. In some ways, our models are good. In other ways, they're really good. And they're way better than they were 10 years ago. But they're still missing one key input, and that's how humans are going to behave during an epidemic. Back in 2005, Nina Pfefferman started to make some headway into how to solve this problem. She was sitting at home in New Brunswick, New Jersey, playing around on her computer. I am a gamer geek, there is no question. When the phone rang, on the other end of the line was a friend, speaking rapidly into the receiver, telling her... That thing we talked about, it's actually happening. Go log in and see. She opened up a new tab and did just that. I logged in instantly. I looked around a little bit. I had, I think, one or two conversations with complete strangers going, what do you think about all of this? What Pfefferman saw on the screen in front of her was unlike anything she'd seen before. Piles and piles of corpses, accompanied by the sound of virtual sneezing. People running around, exploding in little puffs of blood, casting healing spells, and dying. Pfefferman was a World of Warcraft player. One of four million at that time, simultaneously wandering around as warlocks or elves or wizards, going on quests, talking, and generally hanging out. The reason we're interested in it is because it's a bona fide parallel universe. And the scenes of death and dying playing out on the screen in front of her that night were a dream come true. The next thing I'm doing is calling Blizzard. Blizzard is the company that makes the game. And Pfefferman needed to make sure they understood how important this was. They worked with me for like 15 minutes, I think, to try and figure out what I would actually need. Her heart was racing. A decade-old problem may have been at her fingertips. And they were really sweet about it, and their answer ultimately was... I don't think we have what you need. We don't log it in that way. Our goal is to produce a really fun game for people to play, not collect epidemiological data. So let's back up for a minute. By now, you can pretty much guess that Nina Pfefferman is not just any gamer living in New Brunswick, New Jersey. She's a professor at Rutgers University who, among other things, studies infectious disease epidemiology. Epidemiology is the field of studying diseases in populations. And infectious disease epidemiology focuses on how do infectious diseases spread, how bad will epidemics be, uh, how many people will get infected. And that phone call she received wasn't just from any friend. It was from one of her grad students. And he and I had actually joked a couple of, of months before the outbreak happened that what we really wanted to do was use a video game as a behavioral model for epidemiology. You see, World of Warcraft is what's called an MMORPG, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Each player gets a character in this medieval fantasy world and keeps it. And part of the fun is building up that character, getting stronger and more experience. So players invest a lot in this virtual world. Being in the game is an immersive experience. It's visually beautiful. There are millions of players, so it's a very collaborative environment. Uh, When you engage with the game, you're not just engaging with a construct that people have coded. You're also engaging with a million other people wandering around the server, all with their own idea of what they would like to get out of the game. So it's an incredibly social human environment. It's also one that can provide valuable data to Pfefferman. 
even if it is a far-out fantasy world. There are elves and there are goblins and there are undead things running around and there are wizards. And back in 2005, Blizzard released a new area of the virtual world called Zolgrub. Inside of this new area was an evil enemy, a boss called Hakar. Hakar is a brilliant, beautiful, like red Chinese-looking dragon. And part of the challenge of fighting Hakar was that it cast a spell. It was called Corrupted Blood. And what this Corrupted Blood spell did, once it hit your character, was slowly cause you to lose health. But that's not all it did. One of the properties of the spell is that then, without having any control over it, you started recasting the spell at regular intervals. This recasting took the form of a virtual sneeze. You exploded in a little cloud of blood, and there was this wonderful sound that went, This explosion didn't kill you, but rather spread the spell to others around you while it continued to drain your health. Once it was cast on you, it stuck with you. Now, there were two ways to cure yourself of corrupted blood. You could die and cure yourself that way, or you could kill Hakar. Now, this part is important. With these stipulations in the game, Blizzard's intention was for the spell to never escape from this new area of the game. Unfortunately, things don't always go as planned. Running away is also a fantastic option if you think you're about to be killed by Hakar. Um, And if you're infected with corrupted blood, you can, in fact, run away while still infected with corrupted blood without it either having killed you yet or having killed Hakar. Then you run back to essentially an urban city center. And then you infect someone who isn't a high-level player. And then all hell breaks loose. This is what happened. A clever additional challenge built into the game unintentionally became a game-wide plague, affecting millions of its players. At first, it was a small problem, then it was a big problem, then it was a huge problem, then it took everything offline. Corrupted blood got so out of control that the only way they could get rid of it was to shut down the servers, wipe the world clean of the plague, and reset everything. There isn't an exact number on how many people were infected, but nearly everyone playing was affected. Ivan Svenich was also playing World of Warcraft at the time Corrupted Blood was spreading. My name is Ivan Svenich. I'm from New York, originally from Bosnia, and I play a priest on World of Warcraft. Ivan would play while audio chatting with friends, discussing strategies for survival, and sharing plague news. People constantly screaming through trade chat, cursing at people who'd gotten them sick, you know, more or less. Right now, I'm just spreading... But you can't get infected. It's like a new strategy for Hakar. Just pass it around until you get immune. Oh, I'm not immune to it anymore. Oh, and he's dead. A couple days in, everyone sort of realized that cities and starting areas were a bad place to be, and if you could get away from them, then it was probably to your benefit. Gameplay during that time changed dramatically. We were still playing the game, but we weren't really playing the game. We were just sort of sitting around trying to figure out what the best way to get around this and, you know, get back to what we would call normalcy, I guess. And it spread for about three or four days. I think it was three days completely uncontrolled and the fourth day where there were some internal control measures that were attempted that failed. When Pfefferman says internal control measures, she means game-administered and protected quarantine zones. Actual video game quarantine zones where infected players were not allowed in. Even this didn't work. People disobeyed the rules. And then they literally brought, like, Blizzard took the server offline and rebooted it. After days of chaos, the sun rose on a new day in World of Warcraft. The plague was over. But in Pfefferman's mind, the hard work of unraveling what had just happened and its scientific implications were just beginning. I do believe that looking at things that are massively online multiplayer games is currently the best environment that we have for looking at how people behave under risk in a realistic social setting. 
coming up, what the scientists learned from the gamers and how it has changed outbreak modeling from one of the first scientists to deploy computer models for diseases. Yes, I was the original author of EpiSim's software. It's New Tech City. We'll be right back. This is New Tech City from WNYC. I'm Manoush Samarodi. We're talking about Ebola, computer modeling, and World of Warcraft with reporter Simon Adler. And now, the scientist who can tie those three concepts all together. Let's meet someone who took us into the 21st century when it comes to how we study the spread of disease. Hi, I'm Stephen Eubank at the Virginia Bioinformatics Institute at Virginia Tech. Back in 2001, Eubank and his team at Los Alamos Lab had to build a gargantuan computer. And I remember it was sitting in a closet in our, uh, in our offices, and we had lots of fans that we moved to the door when we were doing a big, long run. The thing overheated at times. Uh, temperature control was our main problem. <laughs> Challenge aside, when all was said and done, they ended up with a computer program. Yes, I was the original author of EpiSim's software. The people studying the spread of disease went from predicting with pen and paper to using a giant computer simulator. Episodes was the first thing that let us interact millions of people at the level of individuals that were represented realistically in a society. Every person in the United States, you, me, your neighbor, was now being accounted for in the epidemic simulator by what is called a synthetic individual that is programmed in to move around realistically, depending on local data about wealth, transit usage, age, ethnicity, everything Eubank can factor in. Since EpiSim's launch, the programs and the technology have improved drastically. The entire field of infectious disease epidemiology is a well-developed field, and we have some fantastic tools for making accurate predictions. But that accuracy is contingent on scientists knowing a few key inputs. So how infectious is the disease? How long does it last? How likely are you to die versus recover? These are about the disease cells themselves, what they behave like. The second piece is the biology of the host. How strong is your immune system? Then the third piece that we really need to understand in order to make these predictions accurately is how do the people behave? Behavioral issues are are as important to the way the disease spreads as the biology is. They're talking about behaviors like fear. Are people scared? And when they're scared, do they run for cover? Are they not scared and therefore they keep going with life normally? Historically and to this day, the way these questions have been answered has been by simply asking people. Hypothetical surveys. Can you please sit down with me and tell me what you think you would do if? And the issue with this method is pretty obvious. The problem comes with epidemics is that people are bad at imagining their behaviors, and we're really not good at figuring out how those changes are likeliest to happen under which circumstances. So it's really bad. Bad. Yes, the answer is it's really bad. We don't know. You're right. This is the hard part of the problem. It's not all there. It's not where we would like it to be. Here's the thing. We do have a ton of data on how people behave on a day-to-day basis. For example, according to Eubank, the models they're using now factor in where every synthetic individual in a city will travel on a given day, who they might come in contact with. They don't actually know who you and I are, but they know a lot about a person like you or me. In my case, which subway a white guy in his early 20s living in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, is likeliest to take? They're crazy specific. 
They look at census data, where people work, socioeconomic factors, public transit availability, etc. We like to think that we can, we can make use of almost anything. We just have to figure out the right way to use it. We know what people do during their daily routine, but not what they'll do when that routine gets a wrench thrown into it, like a spreading infection. This is where World of Warcraft comes in. So the analogies for all of these were really pretty direct, but a lot of fun. In real life, you don't want to die of the disease. In the game, the same is actually true. While it is not at all that serious to actually die, it's also not awesome. It's, it's quite annoying. What happens is when you die in game, you get ported to the graveyard and your spirit has to run back to your body to pop back up again. Sometimes that graveyard can be pretty far away. <laughs> so if you were really unlucky, sometimes it would be a 10-15 minute run back to... <laughs> where your body was. It's playing out in a group of people who know each other and to a degree care about each other. So I think what a lot of uh, what a lot of people don't understand is uh, in its own way, it's a, it's a whole separate social environment and that you can be affected both positively and negatively by what someone else decides to do that day. And no, they're not your cousins or your real friends, but you still don't really want to piss off the people that you see every day in this game for the last three years and that you were hoping to see every day in this game for the next three years. Pfefferman says this community is key because in any epidemic situation, a person's reaction is hugely influenced by the reaction of those around them. So we've got the social setup that we need for the behaviors to be not, again, realistic for the real world, but a little bit closer than just sitting down and thinking to yourself, huh, I wonder what I would do. A lot of the roles we see people filling in epidemic situations were being filled during corrupted blood. There were the altruistic behaviors that paralleled the role of the National Guard. Um, we saw some of the behaviors of people showing up to help reinforce quarantine zones. Well, I know a lot of uh, people who would run towards the starting areas and then just yell at people, you know, go around, go this way, don't. Don't go this way because the plague was that way. There were altruistic behaviors that paralleled the roles of medical personnel who went into epidemic zones to save the lives of those affected. In the game, we did have people sort of rush in and go, oh, I can practice my healing spells. There were those who tried to take advantage of the situation for their own fun or gain. There were people running around purposely splitting the plague because to them it was, you know, it was funny to run into a low-level area and just watch everybody scatter, I guess. All these parallels, says Pfefferman, create an environment that tells us much more about how people are likely to behave in an epidemic situation than individuals are able to self-report or predict for themselves on a survey. This insight into human behavior can in turn help us to better predict how a disease like Ebola is going to play out. So World of Warcraft is a really good experiment. It's like a Petri dish where we get to put a little aspect of society with a lot of people who all have different perspectives. And then we get to expose them to something dangerous together. And so that experience that we really can't get in reality, we can get a little bit closer in World of Warcraft or games like it because you have all of the diversity of perspectives but you're still facing a risk together in a way that has social consequences and individual consequences. There are phenomena that go on online that really do reflect people's behavior in the real world. Right now, that's the best, most heavily instrumented place to, to study those phenomena. According to Pfefferman, the corrupted blood incident, which was a mistake and provided much less data than they'd like to have received, 
has already changed what we put into our simulations. But it actually did inform the kinds of models that we built. So Remember that curiosity factor about people risking their character's health just to go and see what was going on in the epidemic zone? Non-medical personnel intentionally going towards an infected area was a behavior that had never been considered before but it's now calculated in. We'd been including healthcare workers and then assuming that they had the training to know what to do, but we hadn't been including, for example, people whose jobs were to report on outbreaks, who of course show up in dangerous circumstances, and it's part of their job. I think it's pointed out that there are some really important behaviors that nobody was paying any attention to. So those kinds of things to incorporate into our models we have been doing since, and they do change the outcome of what our models predict. Pfefferman hopes to run more scientific and extensive plague scenarios in online games in the near future. At the moment, she and her team are waiting on funding. If she gets it, she plans to set up controlled experiments and find human behavior that we're not even aware of. And if she succeeds, the CDC could have a more precise sense of where to send the rapid response teams even faster. And all the worry people are feeling about catching Ebola and concern over where it's going to spread next may be reduced, even if only by a little bit. That was Simon Adler reporting. A big thank you to him. It's kind of crazy that the corrupted blood incident was an accident and yet has influenced the way that we figure out how diseases spread. It makes you kind of wonder what other places online are hiding very valuable information on important, maybe even life or death, subjects. Next week, two of the biggest players on the privacy scene tell us why they stood up to the U.S. government and how each of us can, too, in our own little way, should we choose to do so. If I couldn't explain it in court, I'd do it on the steps of the court so that everybody would know. What do you think, Ladar? Meet Bill on the steps of the Supreme Court? I would be there. William Binney, the former NSA cryptographic genius who actually designed much of the government's data snooping architecture. And Ladar Levison, the guy behind the secure email service used by Edward Snowden. They're both in the new documentary Citizen Four and here on New Tech City. So subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen to on-demand audio. And if you missed last week's show about space travel and girl power, well, I got several tweets from listeners telling me that they cried. Yeah, so did I. Check it out. Let us know if you shed tears of wonder, too. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm in space. Meanwhile, thanks so much for listening this week. Get in touch with us at NewTechCity.org or on Twitter at NewTechCity or me at Manoush Z. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and this is New Tech City from WNYC. I guess it could be educational in some sense. But still, the point of the game is to, like, kill off the whole world. So there's that, too. <laughs>